This is the Uncommon Sense podcast for 3RRR FM with Amy Mullins. First up on the show, historian Dr Alexi Bergantz from RMIT joined me to discuss the diplomatic fallout from the AUKUS security and submarine announcement and why Australia should have seen France's hurt coming. Then, NGV senior curators Dr Ted Gott and Dr Miranda Wallace discuss the pioneering artists and works featured in the NGV's latest major exhibition, French Impressionism from the Museum of Fine Art Boston. These artists include Claude Monet, Camille Pissarro, Edgar Degas, Mary Cassatt and Pierre-Auguste Renoir. Then, finally, historian Barbara Minchinton discusses her new book, The Women of Little Lon, Sex Workers in 19th Century Melbourne. And you are tuned in to 3RRRFM 102.7 FM on your dial and also streaming rrr.org.au. So excited to talk about uh, the next topic that I'm going to be covering today, or the first topic, I should say, which is with Dr. Alexi Bergansd. Uh, he is a lecturer in Global and Language Studies at RMIT at the School of Global, Urban and Social Studies. And Alexi also has released a book very recently called French Connection, Australia's Cosmopolitan Ambitions. And it's a really, really wonderful read. We're not going to be covering it in in any great depth today, but hopefully another time. Um, But it is a really great book in looking at the really um, surprising histories and connections between uh, France and Australia in the 19th century and uh, how they've, I guess, fostered connections, cultural connections and and otherwise. Um, And, I mean, it's probably not something that we think of that much in terms of um, France and Australia because we often see uh, you know, Europe has been quite different, um, certainly beyond Britain as being quite different, those kind of um, Latin-based language countries. However, there is a lot that we do share in common, but there are also some pretty significant differences. And uh, the differences really have been amplified through uh, the most recent diplomatic controversies with the um, submarine deal that was cancelled between Australia and France. Australia decided it would not continue with a $90 billion uh, contract with France um, to deliver diesel-powered submarines at a kind of date into the future. And uh, these submarines were to be, uh, well, they're essentially altered because the French actually make nuclear submarines and that is their main bread and butter. They've been making um, and involved in nuclear technology for over a hundred years, and um, this is something that I know that um, you know the French were quite upset about for many, many reasons. So we're going to delve into why that was, and the fact that it wasn't really just about money or a contract; it was about a lot more than that. So I'm going to now welcome onto the program Dr. Alexi Bergantz, who has written a piece in Mianjin about this. And it is called Australia Should Have Seen Francis Hurt Coming. Thank you so much, Alexi, for joining me. Well, thank you for having me. And congratulations on your book, I should say, which is also a really wonderful read. Thanks. Thanks so much. Now, Alexi, I first up wanted to talk to you about your background and interest in the relations between France and Australia because uh 
perhaps it wouldn't be the most obvious connection to make for some. I think a lot of Australians might assume that in the 19th century and 20th century, Australia was, you know, so heavily tied to the empire, to the British empire, but also to the United States. And they these are the, uh, the two new or special relationships that um, Australia has decided to adopt for a new submarine deal that excludes France. So I guess it makes it all the more personal. But um, what are and what were some of these um, early relations between France and Australia and what has brought you into focusing on them yourself in your own scholarly research? Yeah, no, that's a, it's a very vast question and, and a good question. I, I came here about 15 years ago as a migrant um, and I fell in love with the country, didn't want to leave. Uh, I do have dual nationality now, so I'm not speaking just as a Frenchman uh, or an Australian. Um, what really drew me to this research was you know, my, my own experience of migration. I've always been interested in thinking about Australia's entanglements with France and the French Pacific. Um, the, my book, which you mentioned, looks at... Um, it's a cultural history of the idea of Frenchness or French culture in Australia. And one of the one of the points of the book is to explain that Australia in the 19th century did not just look to Great Britain, it also looked to other countries like France to to think about its future, what what alternative to its fealty to Great Britain existed, how it could become an independent nation at the time of federation and what, what that might look like. Um, you know, France and Australia do have a long history. It can, you can trace it back all the way to the Norman conquest of England, really, because all of those ideas, those British ideas about France and Frenchness were, were transferred to Australia. But there's a much more recent um, history of, of interactions between the two countries. Obviously, diggers were sent to the battlefields in France in World War One. You can point to knowledge transfer in the 19th century. The French had a, a large impact on the wine industry here. Uh, the French and Belgian wool buyers in Sydney as well were very important in fostering trade between Australia and Europe. Um, they also um, influenced Australian fashion quite a lot until the 1960s or 70s. But it's also a very you know, complex and checkered history. You can point to the, the bombing of the Greenpeace Rainbow Warrior in the Bay of Auckland in the 80s and Australian opposition to, to French nuclear testing in the Pacific in the 90s. So in terms of international relations and geopolitics, there's already been a lot of highs and lows. And, and certainly I do think that the relationship will recover from the current crisis. But, but I think from a French perspective, it is really a crisis. It's not as bad the way that, that the Australian press and Australian politicians have been, have been discussing. It is a crisis. Absolutely it is. Uh, I didn't really understand why it's been dismissed so much as just a, a French kind of overreaction and that they're, you know, acting all outraged and it's, um, you know, the, the response of the Australian politicians is, well, uh, you know, this is in Australia's national interests, we have to pursue our national interests and, you know, there's no kind of nice way of delivering the bad news that we don't want to proceed with a submarine contract um, now, that's we'll get into what this really is, which is not just a contract, but I did want to um, take a step back and also ask about French identity. Um, and it is something that is often compared with British identity and British culture. And obviously, um, Australia having been influenced um, by its colonial history and um, the British kind of culture, 
I was interested in that um, difference that's been highlighted, that you highlight in your piece about um, comparisons between emotionally stifled Anglo-Saxons and the French culture of feelings. So when we're thinking about the ways that um, the kind of Anglosphere it behaves, obviously a lot of stereotyping comes into things, but there are definitely uh, differences between the two kind of styles or, or ways of living. Oh, absolutely. Um, and, and that's what's so fascinating for me to to look at is this this conflict between a, you know, what the French call an Anglo-Saxon uh, way of being and, and uh, a French way of being, which is, seems to be, um, well, to me at least, more attuned to, to feeling and expressing emotion. Uh, now, maybe that can come across as being over the top, but the French certainly don't see it that way. Um, but it's really interesting to see how the Australian press was so ready to embrace stereotypes of, about the French because they are so readily available. You know, the French as being over the top and theatrical. But in a sense, when I read that in the press here, I kind of want to say, well, but what did you expect? You're complaining that the French are having a French reaction. I mean, surely we could have anticipated that at the level of diplomacy. Um, you know, you point to the culture of feeling um, that, that's from uh, the English philosopher Stuart Mill, who in the 19th century uh, really admired this, this ability of the French to embrace their emotions and their feelings compared with the emotionally stifled and stunted Anglo-Saxon cultures of Great Britain and America, and maybe we can now add Australia to the list. Um, you know, this was in the 19th century, so it's not like we didn't know that the French are prone to having emotional reactions or or have a rhetoric around feeling. Mm, mm. And I think anyone who is familiar with French culture might recognise that perhaps it's more of a realistic way to respond to human beings, humanity and our fallacies and our weaknesses and strengths is to uh, embrace that emotional feeling and to actually understand that it's part of life instead of, as you've just referenced there, kind of being stunted or stifled by the way that we approach things and have that kind of stiff upper lip uh, demeanour or what some of the other, um, the Prime Minister and President have been, which is quite... Um, I guess, alpha male in the way that they have been behaving and the performative elements that we've seen with Scott Morrison's trip to Washington. It's been very much this boys club, highly masculine, exclusive, you know, posturing. So I wondered what you thought about that in terms of that um, way of doing diplomacy and that way of them, uh, even after all this controversy, uh, still kind of puffing out their chests. Yeah, I mean, that's a very relevant um, or interesting way of looking at it, this, this sort of like hyper-masculinist um, posturing, uh, which, again, is set in contrast with the way that the French are being depicted as um, you know, being overtly emotional, uh, which, again, is a stereotype that was very prominent in the 19th century. The French were also perceived as being more feminine, and that's still the case today. Uh, and they serve as a, as a mirror through which to articulate and, and this over-masculine uh, Anglo-Saxon, again, to use the French word, uh, identity. And what's interesting here is that, like you've pointed out before, this was not just a commercial commercial deal for the French. Um, it's very much about France's prestige in the world. 
uh, and that's why they're talking about feeling so much. In a sense, they are also posturing, but in a very different way. They're posturing by expressing the hurt that they're feeling, uh, the humiliation they're feeling. Um, and I think you know, this is very much where there's been a failure on Australia's part, is not understanding how much ideas about, about what the French call grandeur or greatness uh, and fears of national decline play on the French psyche and, and how much Australia has put a finger on it here. Mm, well, it does remind you, you know, of centuries ago when France was a major power or you, some could argue the cultural power of the world and political centre of the world in some ways, um, in the Western world at least, uh, and and saw themselves as a dominant force and, um, you know, sent out their wares to the rest of the world and then obviously engaged with Asia and had some great, uh, I guess, cultural exchange in their art, for example. So, you know, if we think about France and their pride in their heritage and their culture, which still is very much embedded in their laws, in their uh, practices, I mean, everywhere you look in France is their heritage and their culture from centuries ago and also now. So, uh, it's not surprising that, uh, you know, that their identity from then um, is still part of their identity now. And, and I'd really love to I guess, ask a, a further question about that in terms of their crisis, not a crisis of identity, I guess, but just this questioning of their place in the world. And also um, it's come up recently because of, you know, questioning their place in the European Union and whether Emmanuel Macron, the French president, will actually, you know, take up the role that Angela Merkel, the German chancellor, was really playing, which was kind of the the leader of the pact or the group of, of the EU um, in these forums of world leaders? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of to unpack here. Uh, this this idea that you're alluding to, again, the word being grandeur and greatness, it's, it's funny how much we can make fun of America uh, under Trump for its, its slogan, make America great again. But the French have been talking about greatness for a very, very long time. Um, and, you know, we could probably go back to um, the 12th century and the Holy Crusade of St. Louis to start talking about France's uh, idea of itself as, as this cultural and military powerhouse. But it's really in the 19th century onwards that the French started packaging themselves and their cities and food and wine and so on for the world as consumer goods of high-end quality, um, all the while talking about their genius, their grandeur. Uh, to the rest of the world. Like you pointed out, France had a vast empire in the 19th century uh, that subjected millions of people to the idea of the French civilizing mission, uh, which was that the, the French had an inherently superior culture, language, and literature, and that they were uplifting the rest of the world um, you know, from the, the goodness of their hearts. Um, and for much of the 20th century, France and Paris in particular were considered the preeminent cultural centers until New York um, and maybe London took over. But even then, you know, France still has this, this pull um, around culture uh, and, and intellect. Um, and the French do cling to that idea, to that idea of greatness, of a vision of global power, despite successive military defeats and, and the collapse of the empire in the 1960s. Um, and, and, you know, the British have been commenting on France's ambitions and pride since the 19th century. So, again, we knew this about the French. 
Um, so, so there's really, in a sense, no excuse to not have anticipated the fallout. The, the English lawyer and economist Nassau Senior uh, noted already in 1840 that France was a country that acted, and I quote, for the opinions of the world around her and that it sought not happiness but power. So, you know, we can probably take commentary by the British on the French with a with a pinch of salt. Mm. Um, but we but we knew this about the French. We knew they were attached to the idea of grandeur, particularly since the 20th century, since um, you know Charles de Gaulle's presidency. Absolutely. And um, one thing that is particularly interesting, obviously, uh, you know, the French Empire, they were heavily involved in colonisation, particularly, I'm thinking, Africa and the Pacific. And even as of a few months ago, we saw Macron visiting some of the areas in the Pacific and talking about his Indo-Pacific strategy and their France's key role that they would be taking and have been taking in the Indo-Pacific. So there has been, you know, a lot of lead up um, and a lot of talk about what they've been doing and even um, action in terms of uh, the fact that the French have been participating in military exercises in the South China Seas um, with other countries, including uh, the US and Australia, for example. So this is not uh, as you say, something that's kind of taking anyone by surprise in terms of France and their their view of themselves and their role in the Indo-Pacific. And um, I wanted to bring in here the specific idea that France and Australia had or seemed to be facilitating between each other um, over the last five to ten years uh, specifically, which has been this idea that um, a close alliance with France and, and close partnerships in this defence sense and, and other kind of diplomatic senses provides Australia with another um, way of asserting the, our independent sovereignty and our independence from the United States so that we're not just seen as this kind of satellite uh, state of the United States in a in a defence and military sense. Um, and, and I think the French, you know, have really pointed that out is that, you know, we were kind of um, having this relationship, this diplomatic relationship and and fostering it in order to have uh, these kind of diverse uh, approaches to the Indo-Pacific, to the supposed threat of China, uh, to global issues. And I wondered what you thought about, you know, that ongoing relationship that had been growing and seems to have now been, you know, significantly undermined by what Australia has done. Yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, you're talking about France helping Australia develop, um, in a sense, a sovereign capacity because France was not just selling nuclear sub or submarines, diesel fuel submarine, submarines to Australia. It was also training Australian, the Australian workforce to be able to operate them and not need France in the future uh, with, with this particular military arsenal. Um, and now, now we seem to be entertaining the idea of maybe in the future having to either develop our own nuclear industry to support the new submarines, the nuclear-powered ones, or indeed um, declare a further fealty to the US, um, whom we will need to be able to continue operating them. Um, and this is very much the angle that France was taking over the past oh, five or six years now. You know, it was, it, France's involvement with Australia in the region was partly about developing Australia's uh, multilateralism 
in the region. And, and this is also why it's interesting to see how the Australian press is dismissing the fallout as just being something about a, a business deal, because it isn't just a business deal. The, the issue really goes to, to France's positioning in the region, in the so-called Indo-Pacific and in the world. The, the original contract for the submarines with France was signed in 2016. It's five years ago now. So it's already a long time, half a decade, that they've been working on this together. Uh, and the submarine deal is central to Australia's strategic partnership with France in the Pacific, which was renewed in 2017, so very recent as well. Uh, and this is also in a Pacific context where France's territory of New Caledonia is going towards its third referendum um, to, at the end of the year um, to vote on, on possible independence from France. So from a French perspective, there's a lot of instability in this region in which it, in which it belongs or sees itself as, as belonging. Macron came to Australia in 2018 as well to talk about this new era of French engagement in the Indo-Pacific. So to the French, this is not just about this 90 billion deal. It is also about what the French thought was the development or the building of a shared strategic vision. You know, it bears, it bears pointing out that New Caledonia is closer to Australia than New Zealand. France has about 2 million of its citizens living in the Pacific. And thanks to its Pacific territories, New Caledonia and um, French Polynesia in particular, France has a huge exclusive economic zone. Um, I think it's 1.5 million square metres. It's the second largest in the world. And 90% of that is in the Pacific. It also has 7,000 military in the region. So the implications of this fallout are probably not as big as what we're um, you know, making it sound like, but they are, but they are significant um, because the, the strategic partnership really provided a framework of future cooperation. Uh, the steps for furthering the cooperation in the region seemed logical. Now they're a little bit up in the air. Um, mm. And, you know, this is, this is very, it goes back to the issue of, um, I suppose, humiliation and, and loss of prestige for France. You know, this is Australia saying to France, well, we don't actually care that much about what your future ambitions are, uh, get out of the region or do your own thing. Uh, we will do our own thing for our own interests. You know, the, the deal about the submarine, yes, it's a lot of money. It's 90, $90 billion. Yep. It is a huge contract, but it's certainly not the only contracting arms dealing that France has. I mean, France is the, the third largest exporter of weapons in the world. Um, so this deal is not... It's probably not the largest um, it will ever have in terms of providing arms to, to other countries. So it's not just about the money. There is a much broader context, and that is France's positioning in the world, in the EU, and in the Indo-Pacific, and the way it sees its role uh, in, in the world. And I think that's very much why the French are talking about this in terms of, of humiliation. Um, and again, that goes back, I think, to this idea of of greatness or a fear of decline that is very prevalent in French society. And, and if we understand, you know, these anxieties around France's position in the world and the fear of decline, which is a recurring trope in French society and has been for a century, um, then we can understand why they're reacting the way they are. Mm, mm. And interestingly, uh, it was really 
good to actually see some of the the French side being quoted, at least in uh, international media, in any meaningful way. And Hervé Grandjean, who is a French Ministry defence spokesperson, was telling uh, French television that uh, on the same day that President Biden and Prime Minister Morrison made the announcement, the Defence Ministry and Naval Group received an official letter, a letter with an official stamp on it from the Australian Navy. Um, He said it came from uh, the Australian Defence Ministry uh, and the Admiral who is overseeing the project telling France that he had quote, taken a close look at the state of progress in the contract in line with the contract and was extremely satisfied that the performance of the French submarine was excellent, which clearly means that we were to move to the next phase of the contract. So this is the recounting of what was happening uh, just before this news broke. Um, Grandjean also pointed out on Twitter that over the past 120 years, France has built over 250 submarines, including over 230 conventionally powered ones, so the ones not powered um, by nuclear materials. So this is something which uh, clearly is a point of pride for France as well in terms of its own uh, industry, defence industry and nuclear industry. And as you say, uh, Australia is not the only client of France when it comes to uh, defence capabilities. But I was um, really interested in this specifically to just to go into the specifics of what has happened uh, in the diplomacy of it, because we heard and saw uh, Ambassador to Australia, the French ambassador to Australia, Jean-Pierre Thibault. Uh, he was recalled to France, which is quite a significant thing to remove your ambassador and uh basically take them back to the country um, that they're representing. And that was a a really strong sign. They also removed uh, their ambassador in the US. And that was the first um, sign or the first kind of retaliation to what had happened. And what we've now understood uh, after so many back and forths between journalists and uh, Peter Dutton and Scott Morrison is that we've discovered that uh, on the day before or the night before it was happening, uh, the Prime Minister of Australia tried to call the French President Emmanuel Macron. He couldn't get on to him. Um, So he essentially has sent a personal correspondence, apparently um, most likely a text message to the French President saying that the contract would be over as you said, already five years into it with exchanges between countries of French citizens here and Australian citizens over in France working on this project together. So um, in terms of, you know, this way of doing things, we heard the French Foreign Affairs Minister Jean-Yves Le Drian saying it's a stab in the back um, and that this trust was betrayed, the trust that they had um, established between the two countries. So I just wanted to, I guess, focus on what we now know um, and and whether really this could be possibly seen as an overreaction, given that I think any person who receives such major news right before an announcement's made by text after apparently having these discussions behind their back for 18 months, you know, it, I mean, it seems quite reasonable. Well, absolutely. I think I think if this had happened to any other country, the reaction would have been very significant and severe as well. I mean, if Japan had, um, you know, won the submarine contract and Australia told told Japan uh, a minute to midnight uh, that they're cancelling the deal before making an announcement about a new uh, alliance or a very uh, vague alliance with uh, 
the country's historical um, well, partners for the U.S. and enemies uh, for the U.K. I think any country would have reacted uh, very strongly. Maybe, maybe, maybe other countries would not have used such a vocabulary of feeling and hurt, but the diplomatic fallout would have been significant. It's beyond doubt, I think. Mm. And it's interesting to see that this is ongoing in terms of the diplomatic fallout, uh, because Scott Morrison is not... Uh, has yet to have a phone call with Macron. However, Boris Johnson and Joe Biden have, and we've seen what their response has been. And obviously it's clear that Macron is still quite cold on uh, them and not really giving them a whole lot, uh, which is understandable. But also we've seen German uh, politicians, the German foreign minister, um, saying that it was unsettling um, and said, I can understand the anger of our French friends, what was decided and the way in which this decision was made is unsettling and it is sobering, not just for France, because it suggests that, you know, if this can happen to France, could it happen to any other country? And uh, and also, I think it seems to have really made um, effects in Australia's relations with the EU and our ongoing trade negotiations as well, given that, uh, you know, Ursula von der Leyen, the European Commission president, also said that they would, you know, be pausing things until they understood what had gone on and that this is not business as usual. So, you know, if we're looking at the ongoing diplomatic fallout for Australia and France, what are your thoughts on that, these these ongoing tensions that are now showing up in our trade negotiations, in the fact that uh, France won't meet with Maurice Payne or Dan Tian while they're over in Paris? I mean, this is something that doesn't seem to be finishing. No, absolutely. And, and France was really crucial in, in helping Australia pave the way towards the, the planned uh, free trade agreement with the EU. So I think we can anticipate that the French are going to try to make this more difficult for Australia now. Um, it's interesting thinking about you know this awkward AUKUS alliance uh, in terms of, of empire and the revival of the, the Anglosphere or yeah of, of an Anglospheric alliance because Really, it's impossible to divorce that from the, the domestic politics of the US, the UK and Australia. I mean, this comes on the tail end of, of um, the US's failure in Afghanistan. Australia is facing an election next year, so the drums of war are beating. And in the UK, of course, the context is Brexit. You know, they are now going back towards a, an, a 19th century Anglospheric alliance to demonstrate to the British population and the EU that they don't need to be part of, of Europe. Um, and the irony is that with the UK withdrawing uh, and seeking those Anglospheric alliances, there will be a rebalancing of power in Europe around the Franco-German axis. And now with, with Merkel stepping down or having stepped down, this axis might tilt strongly in, in favour of France. And the EU... You know, it, it is a very large entity now, and France doesn't have the clout that it used to have within it. But the EU and the Eurozone in particular are, are completely unthinkable without France's political clout and prestige and military power. EU institutions are stacked to the brim with French officials, as are European courts and central banks. They draw heavily on French expertise. So, yeah, there's really a sense of irony that, you know, in Britain seeking a revival of Anglospheric alliances with Australia and the US 
Um, this might actually bolster a return of thoughts within Europe, which in turn might damage Australia's prospects of trade. Mm, yes, I mean, certainly they've picked the wrong time and country to mess with. So, um, yeah, I, obviously it's going to be very interesting to see how this unfolds uh, across the next weeks to months. And um, I really do appreciate you taking the time to chat with us to actually explain why the French are hurt, um, rightly so, and why Australia should care more than they have and uh, and not dismiss the way that the French have responded because it has been um, very embarrassing, I've got to say, as an Australian to see um, what my own country is uh, doing on the world stage in many different ways. And this included um, because diplomacy is something that is, you know, um, an art form and we look like we're a bull in a china shop. So, um, yeah, thank you so much for explaining it to us all in such wonderful ways, Alexi. Thank you for having me. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. I'm now really, really delighted to welcome onto the program two people who I've been desperate to chat with. Dr. Ted Gott, he's the Senior Curator of International Art at the National Gallery of Victoria, alongside his colleague, Dr. Miranda Wallace, Senior Curator of International Exhibition Projects at the National Gallery of Victoria. And we are going to be discussing right now the exhibition that is currently showing at the National Gallery. Uh, obviously, here in Victoria, there are different restriction settings. So those in Melbourne, um, you know, can't do much. And obviously, the NGV is up in Melbourne. So it means that it's currently closed to the public. But there is going to be a really great chance for you to take a live tour with Miranda and Ted uh, on Sunday, the 3rd of October, through their Facebook page, which is going to be live streaming. It's going to be a one-hour tour. It will take you on 20 different stops and will culminate in a final oval room, which features uh, 16 of Claude Monet's masterpieces. And uh, if you're not so familiar with French Impressionism or Impressionism in general, uh, although France is really the the place of Impressionism, um, or the birthplace, I should say. This exhibition features a range of artists. 79 works have never been exhibited before um, in Australia, and these works come from artists such as Claude Monet, Pierre-Auguste Renoir, Edgar Degas, Camille Pissarro, and Mary Cassatt, and many more. So I welcome Miranda and Ted now. Hi there, Ted. Good morning, Good morning, and hi there, Miranda. Hi, Amy. It's great to be with you. It's really wonderful to, to chat with you. I know that I desperately wanted to have actually seen it in person, um, which mm. is why we delayed this chat, but unfortunately it doesn't seem like the restrictions are going to be nice enough to let me. But that's okay because there's really great opportunities for people to engage with this exhibition online, which is wonderful, and the NGV is doing a great job of that. Um, and I've also utilise some excellent photographs of the exhibition so I can visualise when we're talking about these great works. But they are something that is, I know anyone who would see a, a French Impressionist work, it's something that you you stand in front of and are quite taken by from its, you know, luminosity, the vibrancy of its colours, the impasto paint, the, you know, wonderful brush strokes and you know, these things are very visible to the naked eye when you're standing 
excuse me, in front of these paintings. So it is certainly something that, uh, you know, is a real luxury, I guess, for us to have access to these paintings in such a, a large scale. So maybe with uh, you, Miranda, given your role as a curator of these international exhibitions, um, perhaps we could just touch on that first in terms of how this exhibition has made its way to Melbourne. Yes, sure. Um, yes, it is. Um, it's you know, in, in, in different times, in our, you know, quote-unquote normal times, this is would have been probably one of our most, I would say, most visited exhibitions um, because of, as you say, that amazing um, experience that Impressionist paintings give you in the flesh. Um, and, you know, we hope to be able to bring some of that uh, to the viewers online. Um, the exhibition comes from the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston, which is uh, one of those great North American museums that was really, um, you know, established and and quickly came to be one of the major kind of places for for holding, in this case, nineteenth century French painting. It's also got perhaps North America's best collection of Japanese art, just as a an extra. Um, feather in its cap. It's a really interesting story. I mean, for people who haven't been to Boston, Boston is a very, you know, it's, it's, it, there's a kind of um, the legend of the Boston, Boston Brahmins, this sort of um, very wealthy uh, figures who um, populated Boston in the 19th century. Some of the, you know, former presidents, great artists, great writers, great medicos who kind of led the cultural um, development of North America. A lot of those people travelled to France even before there were. Um, you know, even when they were like sailing ships, like before, like in the early 1830s and 40s, which is shows a great determination to visit what they thought of as the old country. And they visited France in order to study, They, especially those who were in um, medicine. It's, it was a great connection, but also art and to visit the, you know, art Paris was very much considered the centre of art in Europe in that period. Um, and they brought paintings back with them. They bought work that was contemporary, and then they, uh, when they, you know, were older, they donated it to their museum. So Boston's Museum of Fine Arts was founded in 1870. So it's it's a bit younger than the NGV, but only by a few years. And uh, it very quickly built up this great collection. So we're really lucky to, that they lent to us over 100 works from this collection, which really include the most iconic pieces in their Impressionist collection. They were, I mean, I think it's three or four years ago, they were... Uh, planning to undertake a big renovation project of those galleries. So, you know, at director level, there are often discussions between museums about what's possibly not going to be on display and may be available for a tour. And so we uh, were very fortunate that we were able to arrange this exclusive exhibition for Melbourne. Of course, COVID came along in the middle of that <laughs> and, um you know, that put a few spanners in the works. I think that their renovation project was postponed, but they very much committed to still lend us the works. So all in all, you know, it's had quite a journey to get here. And, I mean, the journey, literally the journey of paintings travelling the world is always fraught with, um, you know, logistical challenges at the best of times. Mm. And uh, during COVID, of course, that added hugely to it. Thankfully, Ted and I are slightly on the fringes of that <laughs> logistical <laughs> nightmare, but uh, our colleagues who work in the registration department had to wrangle, you know, constantly changing freight routes and, um, yeah, the whole issue of, like, couriers who come and basically, you know, 
oversee the transport of paintings uh, and, you know, they had to quarantine. Um, so, yeah, it was, it was a much more complex process. Um, yes. But, you know, we eventually had it on and it was open for a month, I'm pleased to say. I think we did have 30 days of visitation at least. At least we had that. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. I'm so glad that people have had an opportunity. Some people have to see it. Mm. And I know um, I, I was watching one of the videos um, from the National Gallery with the Associate Director of Conservation, Michael Varco-Cox, who was mentioning that some of the paintings in this show had actually been recently conserved and so are being shown for the first time in their new state, um, mm. which I found really interesting too, given that um, this kind of luminosity and vibrancy of a lot of these paintings uh, would no doubt be improved, hopefully, by conservation and uh, would you know, fix up some of the, the kind of deteriorations of, of time because these paintings are, as we will discover, you know, pretty old. Mm, yes, that's right. And I think, I mean, Ted can probably speak to this as well, but I think there are some examples in the exhibition and I'm thinking, Ted, of the um, Narcisse Vergi de la Peña paintings. I think we learnt that yeah. they had recently been conserved and they're really quite dark paintings. They don't have that luminosity because they're a bit they predate the Impressionists. Um, they're a sort of inner section of the exhibition that's looking at the precursors of the Impressionists. Mm. And they're fascinating paintings because he used bitumen um, in his, you know, as part of his materials to sort of get this sort of very heavy, dark, viscous kind of quality to the paint um, at the time, and that's a very unstable um, medium. So they were conserved, and they do have an incredible vibrancy in the in terms of just the, the range of light and dark. There was a lot of varnish removed, I think, from many of the, those earliest works, yeah. um, which helps to bring up the, the vibrancy of them. Yes, it's amazing to see some before and after pictures when you take varnish off a painting. Um, now, I would love to, uh, first of all, with you, Ted, ask about the precursors to French Impressionism, uh, particularly thinking about great people or artists um, who were influenced by them. So obviously uh, art is not done in a vacuum. There's this wonderful melting pot of ideas and also reactions against uh, different movements or styles and, and approaches. So um, I wanted to ask about uh, particularly thinking about Camille Pissarro and uh, who he was influenced by and the other kind of um, precursors to French Impressionism that um, are so so vital to this movement um, coming about? Sure. Well, look, all of the Impressionists, for, um, I, yeah, not for the most part, I'd say all of them were influenced by the preceding generation of artists who are known today as the Barbizon School. Um, and that's because... These artists went out in the 1830s, 40s, and 50s. And in the 1850s, the Impressionists are teenagers, so that sets the time frame. These earlier artists were the first generation that left their studios in Paris and went out and painted directly before nature. They were aided by this, particularly by the invention in the 1840s of the new technology of putting um, oil paints into little metal tubes. So they were able to pack up a box of those, jump on the train and go out into the countryside. And for the most part, they chose to paint in the Fontainebleau Forest, which was just over an hour's journey from Paris by train. And as Miranda mentioned, the works by uh, Narcisse Vigilias de la Peña, and there are 
some beautiful ones in the opening room of the show, are very dark. And so are the works by his colleague, Theodore Rousseau. And that's because when you go to Fontainebleau Forest, it is very dark. There's a very thick overhead uh, tree canopy. And then you come to clearings where there's brilliant shafts of sunlight that come down. So that's partly why their paintings are dark, but also they haven't yet got the new colours that would be invented later on um, that would bring a, a, a sparkling new freshness to the uh, next generation of Impressionist painters. But when the Impressionists were coming of age in the late 1850s, they started to see, they started to visit the, the salons in Paris and they started to see this first generation of artists who'd painted out of doors, and they were inspired by them. And they were also inspired by the fact that these men, because they were all men at this stage, had consistently had their works rejected from the official salon because the salon uh, at this time was the only show in town. It was the annual art exhibition held once a year in summer. Each year there were over 3,000 paintings presented. Uh, so... Imagine our exhibition building in Melbourne on steroids and you've got some idea mm. <laughs> of what the public were faced with. But in these salons, the top of the hierarchy of what you were meant to show were biblical scenes, mythological scenes, stories from Greek and Roman history, uh, battles, uh, stories from contemporary history, the Napoleonic Wars, portraits of dignitaries like the Emperor Napoleon III, Underneath all of that came the humble landscape and down the very bottom, the lowest category of all was the still life. And in fact, so uh, out of favour with the judges who decided what would be shown each year was the still life that in 1863, every single still life was rejected from the salon. So the Impressionist decision to adopt A, the landscape, B, the still life, uh, is radical. And Camille Pissarro is one of the uh, prime movers in that. He's the oldest of the French Impressionists. He was born in 1830 in what was then the Danish West Indies. It's now um, the U.S. Virgin Islands. Um, so he's a little bit of an outsider, as in uh, the sense that he's a foreigner, but he's also a kind of a father or an uncle figure because he's, you know, he's 10 to 15 years older than all of his colleagues. So when they gather together, in um, 1874 to hold their first exhibition, which they do because, like the earlier generation of um, uh, painters working in the Fontainebleau Forest, they had also had their first works rejected from this salon system. So they were over it. So that's why they get together in 1874 and decide to put on their own art show. Uh, and that's revolutionary in itself. They, they turn their back on the entire system. Camille Pissarro is a leader there. He's an advisor and a mentor to all of them. And there are great stories in the show about his mentoring of uh, colleagues like um, Paul Cezanne, the young Paul Gauguin, and then most famously Vincent van Gogh, um, none of whom would, would be the artists they subsequently became without the friendship, the mentoring, and the teaching of Camille Pissarro. Oh, well, I'm glad to hear that. I, I've loved reading his letters um, that were published to his son, Lucien, which I think draw out his sense of humour and just how direct yeah. he is about his views. He's uh, really refreshing to read. Um, and, it, I mean, even in 1891, in one of his letters, um, 
I was taken by, you know, what he was saying about the public's response to their art, which was, quote, it will take 20 years to open people's eyes, even of those who specialise in art. So it's clear that what they were doing, although it's highly popular and very well received these days and one of the most popular uh, styles that people would get to go and see, um, at the time the response was not uh, what they would have uh, hoped for, I guess, in terms of the the level of innovation they were achieving, but also not that surprising that there was that much of a pushback given that focus of on history painting, which you were referencing there, and that you know austere subject matter that has some greater and higher meaning and purpose. So, um, I wondered when you were thinking about uh, these other artists as well, like um, Cezanne. I was. I did remember a quote um, from Cezanne, which I thought might be useful for us to spring from. He said, I have discovered that the sunlight cannot be reproduced, but it must be represented by something else, by colour, um, which I think obviously is quite relevant to all of the Impressionists. So perhaps for those who aren't familiar with the style itself and what the artist was seeking to achieve, um, could you share with us some of these kind of foundational elements of what makes French Impressionism so uh, unique and, and what makes it what it is? Mm. Well, shall I start, Ted, and then yeah. I'll pass to you. Yeah. I'll just mention, yeah. you know, we we um, we worked with the curator in Boston, Katie Hansen, on the exhibition, and she, of course, knows these paintings back to front. Um, and what she wanted to do, and I think it, it's remind people really of what is the kind of classic sort of hallmarks of Impressionism. And she starts the exhibition by, with these two great paintings, one by Monet and another by Renoir, from the mid-1870s, and the kind of checklist, if you like, of things that make a great Impressionist painting are things like the luminous palette, so using light colours, kind of banishing black paint and creating shadow but using purple and green and blue. So it's a kind of quite a kaleidoscopic colour scheme but very differently treated by different artists. So you can't say that there's a single style. I mean, Monet is perhaps the most characteristic impressionist. He uses little sort of dabs, short dashes and dabs of colour with his brush uh, to, to build up a scene. And it's often a broad landscape, a, a picture that incorporates elements of fields and meadows, trees, uh, a kind of horizon line. He's often someone who doesn't foreground the figure, although figures do appear in his paintings, but really he gives primacy to the natural scene. And he does suggest the kind of movement of light on the surface of the grasses and on the flowers, this sort of idea of light. And this is your quote from Cezanne is fascinating because I think it is something that they were grappling with, something that you know, trying to represent the experience of nature and the impression, how sunlight for us, how we perceive it with our eyes and how you then represent that is a very complex thing. And they all do it differently. Um, and just the other thing, you know, the vibrancy of colours, Ted mentioned that, um, you know, there were new paints. One of the new kind of uh, discoveries in the early 19th century had been some new pigments. Previously, pigments had often had to be you know, they were made of, you know, different beetle wings or plants uh, that came, that had to be ground and mixed up to create the colour. And often they would oxidise and wouldn't last very well on canvas. They were much more temperamental. There were more um, synthetic kind of pigments created by industrial chemists and things like chrome yellow, a really bright yellow, is often 
uh, was was certainly used widely by the impressionists, and that those sort of color scheme, uh, emerald green, chrome yellow, certain blues, are quite characteristic in their paintings. Um, so I think that those are two of the things that I would say uh, characterize impressionism. Um, I'll see what Ted has to think as well. Mm, thanks, Miranda. Yeah, sure. I mean, what, what's really radical about them was just their very simplicity. The fact that they turned their back on everything they were expected to do in this salon system. And at the salon, you were meant to show what we call academic art. It comes from the Académie des Beaux-Arts, the Academy of Fine Arts. And students there were trained to paint pretty much in a cookie-cutter pattern. And if you think of a painting like Jules Lefebvre's Chloe in Young and Jackson Hotel, that's a classic Salon painting that won the gold medal at the Salon of 1875, just one year after the Impressionist's first exhibition. And in that, you cannot see a single brushstroke. The surface is just uh, absolutely impeccable. Uh, and the, the, what a contrast with Impressionist painting, where all we see are brushstrokes um, and thick use of paint with the palette knife. And um, so that was radical. Just a, just a simple decision to show simple scenes of everyday French life, to exhibit portraits of uh, ordinary, non-famous people, and to paint fresh new landscapes out of doors directly before nature. This was a revolution at the time. And both the techniques of um, uh, painting and the, the compositions completely befuddled the critics. They couldn't understand why these artists look different one from the other because they were trained to expect all paintings to look the same. And look, let's look at some of the things that they said. In the first exhibition, 1874, one critic wrote <clears throat> that this show is quite simply the negation of the most elemental rules of drawing and painting. The scribblings of a child have a naivete and sincerity that make you smile. The debaucheries of this school are nauseating and revolting. Uh, <laughs> Another critic wrote in 1880 that um, the pure uncompromising impressionist is a man afflicted with a disease of the retina. Um, and that was picked up by another critic who attacked the way that the impressionist, he wrote, quote, they apply the most disparate colours, preferring to paint lilac noses, red eyes, yellow cheeks, scarlet eyelashes, blue meadows. Uh, so they were considered to be freaks um, and lunatics you know, <clears throat> one critic actually wrote that um, among the Impressionist group, there are five or six lunatics, one of whom is a woman. He <laughs> was referring to the great artist Bertha Morisot, uh, who is in the exhibition and is one of two painters who showed regularly with the Impressionist, Bertha Morisot and her American counterpart, America Sutt. Yes, and I believe was Sorry. it Bertha who was um, exhibiting in the first exhibition alongside her male colleagues? That's right. Bertha exhibits in all of the eight group exhibitions that they held in Paris between 1874 and 1886. Only one she missed, 1879, because she'd just given birth to her daughter, Julie. But otherwise, she's a leading figure. She's an organiser. Uh, she's not just an exhibitor, but she's actively involved in preparing for them. And what's also revolutionary about the Impressionist movement is that at this time, women could show in various art exhibitions, but they were not allowed to join any art club. It was a men's world. The Impressionists let them join as members and equals. Revolutionary yeah. as well in the 1870s. So well done then. Absolutely, yeah. And I know that we, um, we mentioned that there are a number of paintings in this exhibition that are very recognisable to people, uh, even if they're not 
particularly interested in art in general because a lot of these works are quite iconic. And um, some of them I'm thinking of in particular is uh, Claude Monet with his grain stack snow effect. Um, he obviously did a number of series of haystacks and grain stacks to look at the light um, in different seasons, in different weathers, and how they um, cast shadows on the ground. Uh, so that's probably a really interesting study of what we've just been discussing around how does one depict light and how, um, you know, you can use these colours of purple to cast a shadow on a, a snowy field. Um, and then there's also another really great uh, striking painting quite large um, when you see the exhibition photographs by Renoir, which is of a couple dancing as well. And that's another quite iconic um, painting. So I wanted to ask about some of these individual artists and how they might differ in their approach to um, painting in the Impressionist style. Because when you look at something like a Renoir, it does have this kind of... Um, blurry or fuzziness that kind of gives it this movement and this um, softness, a soft quality to it. Whereas if you compare it to uh, a Pissarro, you'll see that it's quite, you know, quite different. So I, I just wanted to draw mm. out that a little bit to give people an idea of the differences and why they might have been so different. Well, Miranda, yeah. I'm, I'm thinking of um, the critic Emil Zola's famous statement that um, um, <coughs> modern painting um, uh, depicts a slice of nature seen through an individual temperament. Um, mm. And revolutionary is that all of these artists painted with their own painterly style and individual uh, artistic handwriting, as it were. So we know today uh, from their endless reproduction, you can hold up on a, a public transport or you can stop traffic at a red light and hold up and anyone can say, that's a Renoir, that's a Monet, that's a Van Gogh. Mm. You know, they've become iconic symbols of individual uh, freedom through their uh, quite unique manners of approaching subject matter. Mm, that's right. And Renoir is particularly, I find, quite fascinating. He's someone who has a quite a different start um, from many of the other Impressionists. Quite a few of the Impressionists come from fairly uh, well-to-do backgrounds where they've been, you know, afforded, you know, private art lessons or they go to the Ecole de Beaux-Arts and, and also have private art lessons um, when they're in their sort of late teens. Renoir has quite a different start. He comes from a, a sort of artisanal family in Limoges. Uh, his father is a tailor and his mother is a seamstress. So they don't have a lot of money. And at 13, um, the, the family moves to Paris when I think he's 12 and at 13, he becomes an apprentice in a porcelain factory. So he's painting on porcelain, um, often sort of, you know, the, the little cartouche that appears on a lamp or on a, um, a, a, you know, cups and saucers. And he'll be painting scenes that were popular in that medium, which were often paintings from the early 1800s um, or late 1700s. In fact, the early sort of, sort of French um, sort of Rococo uh, painting, so very different from what was in contemporary art at the time. But he, uh, Renoir, you know, uh, soon he visits the Louvre on Sundays. I think it's free on Sundays. And he goes and studies the paintings and he wants to um, improve his art from a very young age. And so he he's a kind of figure that is constantly evolving. And in the exhibition, we see paintings from quite a narrow period, actually, from about 1880 
to, well, we have the, of course, we have his early 1870s painting at the beginning of the exhibition from his Impressionist, very early Impressionist period. And then we see him in the 1880s transforming quite a bit in terms of his brush strokes. And you see him experimenting literally with the brush and how he applies it. And you end up getting the much more characteristic, I think, feathery brush stroke coming through in that that final painting that you refer to, which is the fig, the two dancing figures, the dancers at Bougival, um, which is one of a series of greater than life size paintings that Renoir made of dancers um, who are in a, enjoying a, a leisure time in an outdoor beer hall. I think there's one that's called a country dance, which is in the Musée d'Orsay in Paris. There's also a city dance. And this one is um, the Boston work. Um, it looks like we all recognise it. I have to say, it seems like a very familiar painting. And I was quite surprised that it didn't come, he's never been to Australia before because a lot of people will think that they have seen it before, but it is quite um, fantastic to have it here. But by that, what the paintings that we've got in the show, um, in the exhibition demonstrate is this constant experimentation with brushstroke. So we see him travelling to Italy, studying the works of the old masters and for many of the younger Impressionists, you know, they, we often hear that they wanted to reject tradition, reject art history and create something contemporary and new. But that's always, uh, you know, it's always a com more complex story than that. There were certainly some of these artists who still wanted to look at the examples of the great painters of the past. And for Renoir, that was visiting Venice and Rome and Florence and seeing the works of Michelangelo and uh, Titian, Tintoretto, and sort of applying some of what he learnt to his own work. And so he really improved his figure drawing and his figure studies. So we go from being primarily landscapes through to looking at some of his figure studies and I think his, his late figure paintings, his great bathers and his pictures of girls in the fields and on the seashore and playing the piano, they're the ones that people I think recognise most readily, that late work by Renoir. So the exhibition gives yeah. us a chance to see how he got there. Yeah, it's, it's really wonderful that we do have access to those paintings. And that reminds me of um, a quote from him about um, the kind of positioning of colours on the canvas, which is really quite obvious in that dancer um, painting. Uh, he said, mm. quote, I began to paint with Naples yellow, which is a rather dull colour. It gave me all the brilliance I sought, but it's always the same story. It depends what I put around it. And, you know, I mean, if you look at the painting, if, if anyone can see it, and I'll um, post up a link to some of these images later, I mean, it is about, you know, what the colours are that are beside it and around it and how they're playing off against each other, isn't it? It is. And just an interesting note about that painting, when we had the head of conservation from the, from the Museum of Fine Arts out installing the exhibition with us, she talked about that painting and, I mean, mostly the colours are, you know, it's a very um, vibrant painting, especially the blues come across very beautifully in the in the painting. But she did say that the dress of the woman has faded over time and that it would have been a more bright, as they called it, shrimp pink, <laughs> which is quite interesting because I think at the time, you know, she there were kind of criticisms of the fact that she looked like, um, she, her dress looked like a lobster tail and I think that was a reference <laughs> to colour. So... I think it was, you know, quite vibrant and a bit shocking to people. <laughs> yes, well, she has a very bright orange hat too. It's like this kind mm. of burnt orangey red coloured hat, so I'm not surprised. That's that right, and red hair. Comparison. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> 
Oh, that's really great. Um, and also, when we're talking about subjects, because uh, Ted, you were mentioning landscape is obviously a, a major development here in terms of the natural landscape, but there are also paintings that uh, from the Impressionists that involve subjects in natural landscapes and also um, focus on subjects more themselves, like in the figures dancing that we're talking about with Renoir. And a lot of it is focused on this um, leisure time and this enjoyment of the countryside um, and if you compare it to the previous school and you think of someone like Millet who was uh, you know painting working class people in fields um, you know getting potatoes out of the ground like this is a, a very yeah. different approach isn't it in terms of the subject matter they're choosing. Absolutely and I think that uh, this new emphasis upon landscape and upon ordinary people engaging in the local landscape reflects the arrival of the new technology of railway travel because for the first time, you know, it's affordable uh, and quick to leave um, the noise and dirt of Paris. Remember, Paris is under intense uh, reconstruction at this time. Uh, and to get out into the countryside, it's only 30 minutes away or, you know, if you want to be more adventurous, it's two hours to get to the, um, uh, the Channel coastline on the Normandy coast. Uh, and it's kind of strange to think that, you know, even just going to the seaside um, was something relatively new that started in the 1860s. In the 1830s, 40s and 50s, people did not go to the beach. Only the people who lived, the fishermen, were the only people who enjoyed the water. Mm. So it's kind of strange to look back and think that it's radical even to paint people on the beach um, at this period. And it's because of the new freedoms that the railway has brought that changes uh, everything in people's daily lives and, and opens up the wonder of the countryside to them for the first time and for artists as well. They're no longer confined to a little area. You know, you mentioned Mia. He spent most of his life living uh, near the Fontainebleau Forest and just painting the little villages um, um, that out a very poor existence there um, in the little village of Barbizon, um, so he did not take advantage of the new technologies um, in the way that the next generation would. Um. It's also great that in this show, I think, that you can see how artists develop um, and the way they paint changes. Um, I'm thinking of Pissarro. You know, the uh, earliest work in the show by him is, is a wonderful painting called Sunlight on the Road Pontoise, painted in 1874, uh, the year of the first independent um, Impressionist exhibition. And there it looks like it's almost like uh, he's using the palette knife, and, uh, knife a lot in it. I like to think it, he's like buttering a piece of toast with great slabs of butter. And there's this great enjoyment of just using the uh, viscous oil paint in this expressive manner. But then when you see works that he does in the 1880s, they're quite different. And it's not surprising that critics have compared them to knitting. Um, you suddenly get, instead of these great daubs of uh, pigment, you get an intense network of, of little dabs of colour that almost seem to be uh, painted the way you would knit a jumper. Um, and then he, although he's the oldest of the Impressionists, he's the most radical because in the mid-1880s he changes his style altogether. He meets the young Georges Seurat and his friend Paul Signac and they've grown up looking at the Impressionists and have decided really that they're not interested in them. Um, and they've been looking at the colour theory developed by the chemist Michel Eugène Chabrol, 
when he was director of the Gobelin Tapestry Workshop. And they're intrigued by the fact that what can you do if you don't mix colours like the Impressionists, if you simply apply dabs of individual complementary colours side by side and then stand back and see what happens? Well, what happens is that your retina creates a third colour from the combination of uh, two on their canvases. And this is called neo-impressionism. It's also known as divisionism because of divided colours. That's also known as pointyism, which crudely translates as dotty painting in English because they're individual dots. When Pissarro decided to paint like this, he created a real ruckus. Uh, some of his Impressionist colleagues cut off their friendship with him, like Paul Gauguin. That was the end of mm. his friendship with him. They couldn't follow him down this new path. So it's fascinating to see even within a single artist, these variations in style as he grows, matures, experiments, sometimes succeeds, sometimes doesn't succeed as well. Yes. Well, neo-impressionism is quite controversial. Even still, some people, you know, really like it and other people really don't. Um, but one of the – it does remind me the fact that the National Gallery owns a really wonderful Pissarro painting um, called Boulevard, Boulevard Montmartre uh, in the morning, cloudy weather, and it's this yeah. absolutely phenomenal painting um, that I've thankfully seen in person. And it's just amazing when you get – up to it to see, you know, these really like bright greens that are just kind of tiny specks that just draw your eye into the middle of the painting. And there's all these really amazing, um, as you say, like technically brilliant and very innovative approaches that you probably don't realise if you're not going to analyse the painting. But when you look a little bit deeper into it, it just, it's kind of astounding what he was doing. Absolutely. Look, I think it's rather amusing that when we bought this painting, and it was bought by our director, Bernard Hall, in 1905, which made us the first public gallery in the world to buy an Impressionist painting, as opposed to being given one. It's one of the first purchases made with our new Felton bequest, the money donated to us by the great Alfred Felton in 1904. When it was first displayed in Melbourne in 1907, quite a few critics said it was, it was really weird. It's out of focus, they said, like a biograph film. And it's fascinating that they were comparing the flickering brushstrokes and what they thought was an out-of-focus picture to modern cinema. And we know that Pissarro saw the very first films made by the Lumiere brothers that were displayed in Paris in the mid-1890s. And so the impact upon cinema, uh, of cinema upon his art is absolutely clear. Um, so is the impact of Monet. Now, that painting, Boulevard Montmartre, uh, Cloudy Morning, <clears throat> was inspired by Monet's great exhibition in 1891 of the 15 Haystacks, which you mentioned before. And in that show, <clears throat> Monet created what was a game changer in modern art, and he just showed the one thing, a single haystack or a grain stack, as the Americans say. Um, but he showed it um, in summer, winter, autumn and spring. He showed it at dawn, in hot noon sun, at twilight. He showed it... Um, in mist, in blinding rain, and as in the beautiful painting I learned from Boston, covered in a light dusting of snow on a crisp winter's morning. So he showed that the subject could be as much about mood, environment, and climate as it is about anything that's going on. So a simple haystack became the focus of a brand new development in modern art. Inspired by this, after he abandoned neo-impressionism, um, he flirts with it for five or six years, but then Pissarro comes back to pure Impressionist painting 
1897, though, his eyesight is, uh, he's got troubles. Um, his eyes dribble constantly in the air, so he can't paint out of doors anymore. So he decides to rent rooms in hotels, and in this case, he rented a room on the second floor, um, in the hotel overlooking the Boulevard Montmartre, and out of the windows of that room in February and March um, uh, 1897, he painted 14 views, exactly the same, showing the same view down the street. But like Monet's haystacks, he shows it in changing seasons. He shows it in the rain, in the snow, at dusk, with all the lights twinkling in broad daylight. Um, and it's just a fantastic uh, uh, new way of painting, which, which we art historians call series paintings. Mm. I think I've got to say that my favourite is what you've just described, the, the Haystack series and the Boulevard Montmartre um, series. And and even in those um, letters to his son, Lucy, and he does talk about his his failing health and uh, and his, his challenges and, you know, his daily life of working on several paintings at once and moving between them. Um, and obviously the challenges that oil paint provide in terms of, you know, timing of, of working on them and um, the paint drying or not drying and needing um, some of this wet-on-wet wet work as well. Absolutely. And, look, we're really lucky that his son, Lucien, moved to London, and that's why we've got hundreds of letters that uh, describe his daily experiences. And you'll remember the great letter he writes when he sees Monet's Haystack show, and he just says, Lucien, something incredible has happened. You've just got to cross the channel and come to Paris as fast as you can to see this. <laughs> and then he's quite jealous yeah. as well. There's the paintings, you know, they're 4,000 francs a piece and they've all sold, damn it. <laughs> <laughs> Which is a big deal, isn't it? Um, and yeah. Miranda, like in the exhibition, I know that um, there is this big room. I haven't yet seen it, but I've seen the photos of it uh, with the mm. 16 pieces by Monet. Um, and obviously mm. we've just been talking about how uh, jealous Pissarro was of Monet's success with that particular series. Um, what are some of the pieces that are featured in this Monet room and, um, you know, how special is it and how unique is it to have these uh, works together and, and I guess what the considerations were for the room because it's quite a unique layout as well. Yeah, it is. It's it's really an exhibition within an exhibition. Um, and when we uh, – so it's got 16 paintings, one of which has um, – a couple of figures in it. Uh, there's an early painting of his wife Camille uh, in their garden at Argentoy, and it's from the early 1870s. Um, the rest of the paintings are all landscapes, and the idea was to group them by place, and they're places that Monet returned to many times in his life and spent a lot of time looking at and painting. So there's a group from the Normandy coast. Monet um, was born in Paris, but he grew up in Le Havre on that Normandy coast. And he knew that landscape very well and the very changeable conditions of the sea and the sky across the, the channel. He also made um, painting visits, you know, campaigns, he would call them in the late years, uh, particularly more, more so as he got older, down to the south of France. Um, and so there's a great group of works from the Mediterranean coast, which has, of course, very different light conditions, much sort of brighter, more luminous. And he talked, you know, he wrote letters um, back to his to his family explaining his, you know, the challenge of, of different light, different conditions um, there. And it sort of, you can tell he kind of was driven by this desire to capture all of these different sensations, just as he did with the haystacks. I think in, with each 
uh, he painted places in that same way, wanting to recreate something of his experience at a particular moment, a particular time in that place. And then there's this glorious group of paintings from Giverny. And uh, Giverny was where Monet later in his life um, moved. I think uh, he was sort of associated with that area for over 30 years. And I think it was really only once he had that very successful exhibition in 1891 that he had enough money to establish properly his house and that extraordinary garden, which is now the Museum of Impressionism um, and Garden at Giverny, that is a great place to visit if you ever get the chance. And that fabulous garden, you know, he was a great gardener and he had an army of people helping him to create a Japanese garden with its wonderful bridge. And so there are paintings of different corners of those gardens and of the fields around him. Um, and we've created this sort of oval gallery in partly um, in an, a homage, if you like, to the Orangerie Museum in Paris, where they have that extraordinary oval gallery to display the very last works by Monet, the very sort of panoramic water lily series, which mm. he created quite late in his life. And he helped to design that space in Paris. So I think he he liked this idea of um, a curved wall being something that almost um, fills up your field of vision and you can almost immerse yourself in the painting. So that's what we wanted to give people that chance to do in this in this room and, I mean, the opportunity to have 16 paintings by Monet. You know, I mean, Boston has 35 canvases by Monet, which I think is, is almost unparalleled. I think, the, you know, the Musée d'Orsay would have something similar, but it's extraordinary and, um, yeah, a really beautiful experience. Yeah, oh, it absolutely is. Um, hopefully one day when we can go travelling, people can check out the Musée d'Orsay and the Blondrerie because mm. it is really something you have to experience. Um, mm. And one other thing I wanted to raise was also, you know, we've talked about um, the two great women as part of this group and often I think in art history the women, well, we all would all know, are forgotten um, at some point in history and then they're remembered again uh, but they can often be seen as separate or outside. And I wonder how you approach this, given that these women were very much um, clearly essential and part of this movement and um, vital to it. How do you as curators and people trying to communicate um, these artists and their various, uh, you know, approaches and styles and uh, individual voices, how do you make sure that the women are integrated and, and heard in the ways that they should be and, um, you know, hopefully will be into the future? That's oh, a really good question. Um, I would say in this exhibition, you know, we, I would say it's, you know, unfortunately we can't do it enough. <laughs> we can't integrate enough in the story of Impressionism, which was partly because we are a little limited by, you know, this is a single collection exhibition. And in fact, the work by Berta Morisot um, that we've borrowed from Boston is the only painting by her in their collection. So, um, there are some museums um, that have several works by her and, you know, and can even pull together, a, a, you know, a kind of bit of a suggestion of the, her um, development over her career. However, we couldn't do that in this show. Um, she, we, we kind of, I mean, there are four main female artists who exhibited with the Impressionist groups and though, and two of them uh, probably seen least now in exhibitions. One of them is Eva Gonzalez, who was a, student of um, Edouard Manet, but she died very young, sadly. And the other is uh, Marie Braquemont, 
who was very prolific, but stylistically is much less associated with Impressionism um, in terms of her style. It's a bit more, um, I wouldn't, how would you describe it, Ted? It's sort of... Uh, yeah. yeah, it's yeah, more it's illustrative, really. Printmaking, illustration. Yeah, that's right. And so she's not in, included in this exhibition, but the two women who are, are kind of are very much treated as equals in the groups that they're shown in. Uh, one, the work by Morisot is in the still life room, and she is actually the most experimental of the artists in that room. And you can see um, in that painting her tremendous freedom and, and sort of uh, spontaneity of brushwork. Uh, the work by Cassatt is a fascinating painting that shows her very much as a equal to Degas, with whom she was great friends for 40 years. Um, and she was, you know, all despite being Philadelphia born, she was very much a part of the French group. She lived in France for her adult life and um, was a great kind of conduit between America and France in terms of the kind of sale of American, French paintings to American museums. But we can really only gesture towards that. I think, you know, both of them probably deserve a, a um, retrospective <laughs> for our visitors to get a full sense of their careers. Yeah, Absolutely. I know, it's, it is a challenge. I'm, I'm delighted, Amy, to say that um, thanks to the generosity of the people of uh, Melbourne in particular and of Australia, uh, we've been able to add a painting by Bethel Morisot to the National Gallery of Victoria's collection. Not many people have seen it yet. It was on display in the foyer where we had um, uh, a fundraising campaign. It was only on view for 30 days before we had to close the gallery, but we'll be placing it in our French Impressionist Gallery. <clears throat> it's the first work by Bethel Morisot to enter any public collection in Australia, and it's the first painting by a French woman impressionist to enter the NGV's collection. It's a beautiful work painted in 1889 called Embroidery, and it shows her um, daughter Julie and her cousin Alice um, embroidering um, what, what looks like a, a dress uh, together. It's an absolutely cracker painting. And so we're very proud that mm. we will be permanently representing uh, women at the heart of the Impressionist movement on the walls of the NGV once we reopen. So mm. there's a picture for people to zero in on once we get our doors back open. <laughs> it's another yes. reason to be very excited about when restrictions ease and we can all get in to see some paintings in person. And I'm really excited by that. Thank you for telling me about that, uh, Ted, and also um, Miranda explaining the, the wonderful work of the women impressionists as well. Um, so we've talked about how these amazing artists, um, there is an opportunity, despite the restrictions, to engage with these artworks with yourselves this Sunday through the National Gallery of Victoria's Facebook page. There's going to be a live curator tour. So um, people can just essentially head on to the National Gallery's website and see that live stream, sorry, the Facebook page, and see the live stream. And I've put the link up on Facebook as well. Um, but I'm, I'm gathering it's a, a kind of really great opportunity for people wanting to uh, join you to actually walk through the gallery virtually with you to, um, to kind of go on their own tour. That's right. And we kind of, um, Ted and I, have a little bit of a double act. Uh, we've done a few of these tours just for some of our, um, uh, you know, sponsors uh, to sort of test out the technology and the system. And it's actually a really lovely way 
to tell some of those stories looking at the galleries. You get quite an amazing impression of the spaces on this um, Matterport technology that they use because it's got a real sense of three-dimensionality and space. And there will be, um, you know, a chance for questions and answers at the end as well, um, so for a bit more of interaction. But during the actual tour, it's Ted and myself going through the the whole exhibition, and it does take an hour because it's quite an extraordinary <laughs> exhibition. Um, and we do look in detail at some of the paintings as we go through just to, to draw out the stories of these great artists. Mm, I'm so glad that there is this opportunity before the exhibition ends. Um, do you think that uh, I'm gathering the exhibition still ends in October? Yes, that's right. Yes, yep. that's, unfortunately we were unable to extend it. Yeah, no, that's okay. Well, I have posted up there the um, link on the Facebook page to your uh, feed where that's going to all happen, and I hope people can uh, partake in that at 4 p.m. this Sunday. It's really exciting, and I'm very, very, very pleased to have been speaking with you in depth about this wonderful exhibition, which is called French Impressionism, and it's uh, essentially a great work or ex group of works from the Museum of Fine Art in Boston. So uh, we are very fortunate, as you heard, to um, be able to see so many of these works that have never been here in Australia. But as you said, Miranda, um, we all feel like we've probably seen them before because there are so many that are iconic. And then there are others who, thankfully, we now get to see for the first time and um, get to know. So thank you so much uh, to you, both Ted and Miranda, for taking the time to chat with us today. It's a pleasure. Thanks so much, Amy. Yes, it's been great speaking with you. Thank you. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. So it's really, really exciting to be talking to Barbara Minchinton, who is a historian and an independent researcher. She's written a new book, which is out through La Trobe University Press, which is an imprint of Black Ink. It's called The Women of Little Lon, Sex Workers in 19th Century Melbourne, and it's looking at this really interesting chapter of Melbourne's history, particularly through the stories of women. And uh, we'll get into why that's so special and unique uh, in just a moment, but I'm really pleased uh, to welcome Barbara onto the program. Hey there, Barbara. How are you doing today? Good. Thank you. Thanks, Amy. Lovely to be here on this sunny day. Yeah, it's just so, so good to, you know, get a bounce in your step. And we've just been talking about uh, French Impressionism. So I think we've all been picturing ourselves in fields with flowers. So uh, we're now going into a different place in time, or at least uh, there is some overlap actually with French Impressionism. But in Melbourne, it's a little bit different. Uh, and it's very, very urban um, and very, well, it sounds quite of a hard life um, in some of the areas that you are talking about in this book. And uh, when you're looking at, in particular, uh, sex workers and also the women who ran the brothels and establishments that were frequented by a whole range of uh, clientele in Melbourne. So um, before we jump into those, the specifics of that, uh, I'd just like to talk with you about your historical interests and research and your involvement in that the archaeological um, research that was done from the 80s onwards around this area of Little Lon um, and what it really 
I guess, inspired in you and, and brought to the forefront of your mind in a historical sense? Okay. See, Little Lon has been studied by archaeologists because it provides a real insight into, I guess, the working people of Melbourne in the 19th century. And what they dug up over a series of archaeological digs, they were looking at what kind of materials people were using, what kind of material goods they had bought and then dumped in their cesspits, if you like. Um, I was actually working with them as a historian while they were digging up the, the objects. I was di trying to dig up the people that matched. So in one of the cesspits, for example, they dug up a whole pile of um, absinthe bottles. And absinthe, they're, they're the only absinthe bottles, I think, that have been dug up on any site in Melbourne. So the question then became, well, who put them there and what were they doing with so much absinthe? Um, but the absinthe was, there's the French theme for you. Um, yes. came from French people. Um, it was part of the whole, um, I suppose, the, the painters and, and the artistic people, the bohemians in Paris were drinking absinthe. It was very fashionable. Um, but when we started looking at them, what we dug up was, in fact, a woman running a brothel. And we think that the absinthe was part of the attraction for... Um, she was trying to differentiate her brothel from other people's. So she was doing something different. She was serving up absinthe. Mm. <laughs> is this um, Mrs. Bond? This is Mrs. Bond, who was actually Irish. She wasn't French at all. There were some French women running brothels, and it always seemed to be the thing that the newspapers clung on to. You know, if they were French, they, they, they must have been an upper-class type of brothel, really, but it wasn't quite true. But Mrs. Bond was Irish and she was, yeah, using absinthe as her attraction, mm, added well, attraction. It's not surprising when you think about it. And obviously absinthe is a very strong alcohol uh, a liqueur. So it's something that would have had some, you know, pull to some of the clientele who were interested in something a little bit different to the usual options. And you do talk about the different alcohol that was part of this scene. And so there were kind of varying levels of alcohol and types of alcohol depending on the different type of establishment that um, that they were situated in and that they were promoting themselves as, as being either a kind of more entry-level place or somewhere where only the most um, wealthy and well-off uh, and influential people would frequent. So um, I wonder if you could just share with us some of these insights that you discovered um, and that have certainly been illuminated by your research and also um, married up with this uh, archaeological um, dig and findings in terms of the types and tiers of um, sex workers and the places that they were working at, the type of venues. Yeah, Little Lodden is probably famous, I suppose, for Madame Brussels' establishment, which was at the upper end of Little of. Greater Lonsdale Street, as it was known then. So it was perfectly um, positioned between the um, Parliament and the exhibition buildings and the entertainment precinct, I suppose, at that point was down in Burke Street, where the theatres were. So hers was really the upper crust in the 1880s onwards, and her establishment was very much... Um, 
she kind of apes the the move to the, of the middle classes into gardens and things on the into the suburbs. She kind of created that in the, in the inner city, whereas really the the lower level of the brothels they were really back lanes and there was a lot of theft and a lot of beer and alcohol and um, yeah they were quite um, very poor areas so. The industry ran across that full gamut from from the you know starvation and um, a lot of alcohol right through to that most expensive elite level, and but there are a lot of middling class brothels there too, along Greater Lonsdale Street particularly, and in Little Lonsdale Street, and that's why Little Don got its reputation in 1915 when C.J. Dennis wrote about um, Little Lon, he really gave it that reputation as they deals it out with bricks and boots um, in Little Lon. Um, so, yeah, it it went right across the full gamut. And, but the whole sex work industry in Melbourne um, moved into Little Lon because the police, as reputations... Oh, sorry, as as respectability gained strength, I suppose, more and more people didn't want to be living anywhere near women doing this kind of work. So the police just gradually moved them away from respectable people who complained about them into a more industrial area where fewer people complained, which is why it sort of there was a whole period where it was around Little Burke Street, the upper end of Little Burke Street, um, and then later on, even from there, with the slum clearance, they moved them out of there and they moved the women over to, well, out to the suburbs, some of them, but into Little Lawn, which is when it really took off as the sex work precinct, if you like. Mm. But, no, I was just going to say, um, in, in terms of the fact that these areas, obviously Little Lawn, but also the Little Burke area, um, and I know many people will be familiar with the layout of the city, you know, given that it's on the Spring Street end, and obviously, you know, we often hear about it being called the Paris end of Collins Street a little bit further across, um, this is obviously nowadays a really um, nice place to be, and and also it is, as you've mentioned, it has this proximity to Parliament and these very crucial, you know, key buildings in Melbourne. So, I mean, when you're talking about this um, era, this the sex work becoming disreputable and, and not um, being something that people want to be associated with, how does that work in terms of the men who would have necess- necessarily had quite high profiles from Parliament House, for example, who were utilising the services of sex workers? Well, it was very much... in. It was They used to call it the necessary evil. Um, the necessary bit was the male bit. The men regarded it as necessary for their um, sexual health to have access to lots of um, women, whereas the evil part was what they related to the women. So a woman who was doing this kind of work was regarded as morally disreputable and um, evil, whereas the men needed it. So it was sort of a, it was one of those things that was kept in the shadows in one sense as far as the men were concerned. They, they didn't want to be seen to be using this um, industry at all. But the women were actually quite visible because they were on the streets. You know, this was 
largely before the time of telephones, although there is this story about Madame Brussels having the very first, one of the first telephone um, Brussels, <laughs> first call, call centres, if you like. I haven't managed to prove that one way or the other. But so as far as the men were concerned, they just, men were protected from even their names being mentioned in, in the courts. If a woman threatened to actually name someone, she'd be stopped by the judge and told, we don't need you to say anything about that. Mm. Um, but the women themselves, their names were always published in the newspapers. They were the ones who were um, pulled up and, um, yeah, sentenced for all sorts of things. So even though it wasn't technically a crime in itself until 1891 when they made soliciting in the streets a crime, um, but it was certainly policed in a whole range of ways and it was the women who were policed much more than the men. Yes, yes, I know that it was um, very much regulated and policed with that idea of disorderliness and that was the kind of code word for um, someone who was seen as a sex worker and I know that became more crystallised in terms of its meaning as time went on. You do mention in this book uh, the judges who are playing a a role in um, sentencing these women and saying that some of them were quite lenient uh, and that was potentially and likely because they were also using um, sex workers and the services of sex workers. Uh, But then there were also these, you know, highly moralistic, quite religious types who um, were also, you know, in judgment of these women and that they would often uh, hand out quite severe sentences for very little in terms of an offence. Yeah, it was very much um, because the law was in regard to women, in in regard to disorderliness. The courts that dealt with it were the lower courts, which were what we would call the magistrates' courts now. And the magistrates were not legally trained um, up until sort of the 20th century, really. So they were JPs. They were upstanding, respectable men who, of course, had a range of attitudes towards um, prostitution. So... Those who didn't see, those who saw it as a necessary evil, tended to be less um, judgmental about the whole situation, and they would often just let them let the women go. But then there were those who were quite strict about it and said, you know, you you've been disorderly, off to jail for three months or six months or twelve months even. So it the law was kind of much more about attitudes. I guess, at that level than we would expect it to be now. Um, And the women were really at the butt of that. They suffered as a result or or got away with things. Um, if, If they were thieves, if they were thieving, that would be much more harshly treated. But if it was just the, the disorderliness or someone complaining about them, that, about their behaviour. And we, we should talk about what disorderliness actually meant um, in this period, that women were not able to go out in the streets without a bonnet and gloves. You know, that was to go out and show your petticoats was considered disorderly. So they could actually be charged for things like that or for things like abusing someone, using bad language, um, 
where men would probably not be charged with that sort of thing, with insulting language or whatever. And they could get quite harsh um, sentences for just swearing at someone, swearing at a policeman or... Um, so that, that notion of disorderliness was very much about where they were doing it, who they were doing it to, was about attitudes too. So the law could be quite flexible, really. Mm, mm. And, you know, it's we've seen this time and again throughout history, haven't we, about the interpretation of the law and how it's applied unevenly uh, depending on the person and the, the sex or um, perhaps racial background as well. And mm. in terms of the the makeup of the women who were sex workers at this time, um, you do go into some of the demographics um, and the countries that they were from. Um, and obviously you point out that Ireland is a, a kind of um, key place where a lot of these younger women came from who ended up in sex work was quite interesting to you. Could you share with us what made it so interesting in terms of the Irish element? Um, I guess I was surprised by continually turning up Irish women and who were quite willing to profess their um, church affiliation to the Roman Catholic Church. So I started asking, well, what did it mean in terms of their religious belief or um, that they would be doing this kind of work? And, and it surprised me, I suppose, that, but when I went into it, I realised that it was much more about the fact that these women were coming out, that a lot of them were single women who had no family support here, who were going against the accepted um, way of behaviour, I suppose. There was, there was quite a strong emphasis on um, the Irish being argument or loud and, and doing things that English women wouldn't do. Or So there's, Irish servants were considered... Um, yeah, there was, there was a sense of no Irish need apply. We don't want those rough Irish women here. Well, if you take away their capacity to do domestic work, they're not trained for many other things. So what are they meant to do? They're brought out here. They've, they've come from poor backgrounds. They might have come from um, mainly farming backgrounds, but they're brought into these households where they're meant to know about how to treat the silver and, and how what to do with particular kinds of dishes and how to lay the table and just was not part of their understanding of the world or their experience of the world. So a lot of them ended up, I think, in sex work here because of that kind of mismatch between their background and what was expected of them in this increasingly respectable um, English-based world that they'd come into. So... My interest in them was that they were they were often um, they were really feisty and they were in a sense you could see them having a lot of fun with their friends. You could see them out in the street dancing and and having music in the streets and so on. And it just for me was much more of an echo of of the Irish way of being compared to the very um, stiff upper lip English way of being. So there's a kind of a cultural mismatch, which I think was an element in it. But it was also about poverty. It was about just the the deadly 
living in a world where you just didn't have enough money to live properly, decently, even the way you might want to. You didn't have enough money to feed your children or um, there was just a lot of that poverty in the back lanes of Little Long, which is easy to find a lot of descriptions of that kind of thing. It's not easy to find the descriptions. You have to read between the lines to find the women enjoying each other's company, being being part of a group of women who were independent in a way that they couldn't be in any other way. It, it was not a world where independent women were accepted or um, lauded for that way of being. So sex work offered different things to different kinds of people, I suppose, different characters. And But I could see with the Irish, they... There was something about it that was more attractive to them than the laced up um, world that was around them in many ways. Mm. Um, it's really interesting that I'm going to come back to that. But before we finish on the um, the kind of makeup of the people and the populations, you referenced um, a set of criminal statistics in 1859, which shows that out of a total of 245 women taken into custody as disorderly prostitutes, 129 were Irish, 75 were English, 18 were Scottish, 20 were born in Australia, and three Aboriginal women were counted separately. And you highlight the fact that Indigenous sex workers existed, but that they don't appear in the records relating to Little Lon, um, which I also found really interesting because I think some people might assume that this was um, only white women. Um, clearly, it wasn't solely white women. Um, but was it was the kind of uh, makeup of this, or um, at least the Indigenous sex workers? I'm guessing that was a, a much smaller proportion overall in terms of what the primary evidence can tell us. Yes, it's that's the figures that you quote are the only figures. I have got no records whatsoever of. Um, women coming, our Aboriginal women doing this work. Like there, is, there are no records in the police records in, in anywhere that I've found except for that one set of statistics. So it left me with this sense of, of the silence around it that we just don't know what the stories of those women were. I'm sure probably there are a series of... Um, from 1860 to 1920, we've got the prison records of um, women in Victoria and men, and they've been digitised. And I'm sure a lot of work's been done looking at the makeup of those women. And I'm sure there would be um, ways of looking at that to see where we might have um, had First Nations people involved. But I'm I'm still a bit at a bit of a loss that I just don't know what that story is. Um, I did find one record for in Little On of a of a girl who was just present when a policeman was working um, trying to arrest some women in a brothel, and she was re- reported as being half caste. My immediate thought is half caste um, First Nations. But I realised after a while they probably meant half-caste Chinese because in Little Lon um, it was very close to the Chinese quarter and in fact became much more a part of the Chinese cabinet makers 
um, enclave later on in the century. So I'm thinking probably that so-called half-caste child, young woman, was probably Chinese. Mm. So it's it's difficult when you're looking at 19th century language to interpret sometimes what is meant by various things. Um, and that's just one example. Yeah, and you do also point out the challenges of a historian, you know, relying on these primary evidence. Obviously, there's the official records, which, um, you know, vary in their robustness and um, are, are created by different people. All of them presumably were men. But then there's also the newspapers, which, you know, they are a rich source of evidence, but you can't just take them at face value, especially for this subject matter, which, as you point out, tried to make it more salacious and uh, more dramatic and more, um, I guess, gossipy uh, than it maybe perhaps even was or certainly played it up. Um, so it does require some interpretation and, and I guess, a different approach than um, and also to, to make sure that that what you're reading is definitely accurate because, as we know, even in those newspapers, you can sometimes get conflicting reports between two different publications. So um, I wanted to ask about that male lens and the fact that obviously this book is providing the female lens because you're going into these women's lives and their stories as best you can with the evidence you have. Yes, it is. It's difficult. It's, it's a matter of reading between the lines of newspaper reports. And it is the lovely thing about um, Melbourne is, is that we have Trove, which is just a goldmine for any kind of research of the 19th century because it's all not all of our newspapers have been digitised, but enough of them, particularly when we can look at The Age and um, The Argus, which had quite conflicting views of the world, um, and you start comparing their reports and then you start to recognise that particular reporters have a particular take on things. Um, and you, you can see, you've always got to read between the lines about what their, the reporter's attitude was. And this is, we're always looking at it in, from the point of view of the judges as well, that the JPs, this is what we're seeing is what were the dominant attitudes of the time? And we see it in the reporter's some of them were very um, compassionate towards the women. Others of them were not at all. They were they just dismissed them utterly. Um, so it is always a matter of reading between the lines and realising that the reporters often didn't even get the spelling of the names right. So you get a couple of reports and you've got a couple of different spellings and then you start tracing trying to trace the same person through different spellings and that gives you a lot more information too. So, yes, it's it's not easy. The policemen particularly were not... Um, they're not always good readers and writers, if you like, too. So you've got that... But you get a lot of honesty from the police, the, the men who said, well... Um, you know, this one's having a go at that one, but really it's just because they're having a fight in the neighbourhood about where, the, where these sex workers are spending their money. So, mm -hmm. so the complaint about them is, is not about their morals, it's, it's about their, um, where they're spending their money. And it is, it, it's trying to put the story together. There isn't just one story, there are many stories all, all the time. But So my book is actually 
it grew out of the fact that I got so sick of reading these put-downs of these women from all directions. And I thought, there's got to be another side to this. You know, women women weren't all evil and they weren't all um, taking advantage of men. They weren't all just doing it because they were moral reprobates. There were, there were stories behind them. Um, and that's what really drew me into it, that we kept digging up people who to match the objects we were looking at, but realising that there was a whole lot different story involved. And some of them were very sad stories. You know, there's domestic violence is nothing new. And a lot of these women were um, victims of domestic violence. And that's been one of the interesting things for me too, to see how the expensive brothels like Madame Brussels and Sarah Fraser, who was her predecessor, if you like, how they were... They were so often protecting women who had had shocking experiences in, in marriage and they turned to the brothels as a way of making a living to escape from that kind of um, domestic ghastly situation. And But then in 1864, Victoria brought in a law that said no child under 15 could be living in a brothel. So they would take the children away and up to seven years in industrial schools. So then the women had to become quite cunning about, you know, if they're doing sex work, they have to make sure they, they keep on the right side of the law, and which is why Madame Brussels kept her house very quiet. It's almost impossible to find um, any pictures of it, for example. She just, um, she knew what she was doing and protected a lot of women in that way. Mm. Well, I just loved hearing about Sarah Fraser and Madame Brussels because these are, you know, really formidable women, clearly, um, in the descriptions of them and the way they operated and their commercial acumen. They were obviously also really women of taste in terms of the ways that they uh, decorated their houses and the places that were used um, as brothels. And so I just loved the description of uh, Sarah Fraser's um, place, one of the flashest brothels in Little Lon, um, one of her houses. And you talk about the furnishings being eclectic and expensive with French, English and Italian furniture made of oak, mahogany, ebony and satin wood, as well as maple, rosewood, tulip and Indian woods, painted panels by the likes of Angelica Kaufman, who was one of two female founding members of London's Royal Academy in 1768. She had great taste in porcelain, so she had French and English porcelain. Um, you know, these are people who clearly have put a lot of um, effort and care into creating a place that is, you know, as, as they're termed, a flash brothel, a place that is really um, sought after by men of means. Learned about them given that as you say in the book, women were essentially the ones running these brothels and they that is quite a unique feature if you compare it to now. Yeah, I, th I think it's a situation that changed across the century in that there were much more, there were many more men running the brothels in the 1850s and 1860s. They were often, um, yeah, much more the traditional kind, if you like. Um, there's one thing I wanted to say, though, about Madame Brussels and Sarah Fraser, who on the surface looked like very wealthy women in that they were 
um, the goods they owned the, at the end when after they after their death, the things that were advertised for sale and auctioned, but they weren't wealthy at all in the sense that Sarah Fraser, when her stuff was auctioned after she died, she um, it, it didn't cover her costs at all. And part of the reason it didn't cover her costs was because respectable Melbourne would not buy things that from from the auction that they knew had belonged to the brothel. So a lot of the stuff was sold basically to get rid of it and she essentially left nothing at the end of it. Didn't didn't even cover she was thousands of pounds short of covering all of the um, debts that she held. Madame Russell's was a little different. She she left a bit to her adopted daughter, but really they were um, even after even after their deaths they were punished for doing this kind of work because they couldn't actually realise the value of the goods that they owned. Mm. So it's it's sort of this double standard about. Um, yeah, about this kind of work was there right right to the end for these women. They could never be considered respectable on any level um, and they could never be appreciated. They were really ridiculed. Madame Brussels in particular was just ridiculed in the end um, and none of there was no recognition for the good things that she did in the world for, for any of the women or... Um, and, you know... It's a difficult thing. She she had her own um, crosses to bear, yeah. and she also did some things that weren't particularly morally upright as well. So, you know, we're not all good and we're not all bad, but these women really took a beating in many ways, mm. which has taken us right away from the question, which I've completely forgotten. That's okay. We've <laughs> gone into another area, which I'll finish on because we're running out of time, but I just wanted to bring up the life and life, the I guess how lively these women were and you write about the fact that Sarah Sarqui was a professional singer before she turned to sex work. Her second husband was both a composer and a pianist of international stature and you also mentioned that Madame Brussels, also known as uh, Caroline Hodgson, was reputed to keep company for some years with Alfred Plumpton who was the music critic for the age and you give this great um, visual of women in these back lanes of Melbourne who were dancing and singing in the streets, who visited town halls, dance halls, sorry, and also uh, theatres and enjoyed this kind of life that they wouldn't have otherwise been able to really embrace. So I think that's also what um, struck me was just the humanity and the individuality of these women who were doing something very different in a time that wanted them to be very um, stared, very austere and follow, you know, the moral rules of the time. Yes, that's true. And I think it's a, it's a difficult balance in the sense that, yes, the women were, they had a lot more freedom to move. They could be, they were out in the street at a time when respectable women couldn't be out in the street without a, a man to accompany them. Um, but they paid for it in many, many ways. Um, and yeah. there's... Um, Things like the, the diseases, there was no treatment for um, sexually transmitted infections, for example. So that could be pretty ugly. Um, 
And there was also, you know, unexpected pregnancies or they would have to just deal with that. And there was no sympathy from anywhere. So there was no, um, nothing they could do to move beyond any of that apart from um, getting married. And the interesting thing is that tracing them, a lot of them, that's what they did. They did it for three or four years and then they got married and moved, effectively moved out to the suburbs with um, their husbands and raised families. So Mm. it was a short-term thing for a lot of women, but it had some pretty ugly consequences also for a lot of women. So it's trying to see that balance of, it, it was a, it was a full life, you know, and you look at Little Lon and it, it was a world full of the ups and downs and goods and bads of every community. And I think that's the thing that was most impressive to me was that it really was a community, that, that there were the goods and the bads and, and the um, neighbours who didn't get on and the, and the fights amongst them. But when the chips were down, you know, the women were there for each other and did all sorts of good things for each other. So well, I hope people can pick up this book so they get a sense of that in more detail. It's a very detailed book. It's got some brilliant primary sources in here. And I really appreciate your time today, Barbara, because we've run out of time. But thank you so much for joining (laughs) me today to talk about it all. Thanks, Amy. It was great. I'm Amy Mullins, and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.